Today I chat to a fellow podcaster called Pam Ferris Olson, who is the founder of Women Mind the Water, who is a storyteller, artivist, and advocate. And we have a chat about why it is so important to kind of harness different medias to talk about the ocean and marine conservation and sustainability, and how she has taken her life's experiences to put together this amazing community of women that highlights women and showcases women who use art to tell the plight of our oceans. I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and forgive me for the background barks of my dogs. For some reason, the overcast weather has got them very excited um, to be playing with their friends outside. Anyway, before we get into it, uh, I want to say thank you, as always, to all my listeners and everyone who takes the time to like, share, or leave a review on this podcast. It really helps me out. And if you'd like to take it a little bit step further, you can become a patron. Join us on Patreon, uh, patreon.com-oceanpancakepodcast, where we have a cute little community, and I feature some videos and behind-the-scenes stuff and let you guys vote on what's going to happen next. So yeah, thank you so much, and let's listen to that. Every day, there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. or good night, depending where in the world you are. Today, I'm here with Pam Ferris Olson, who is a storyteller, artist, and advocate, and most importantly, founder of Women Mind the Water. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Pam. Thank you, Kat. It's a lot of fun to think that we're almost as far away as we can possibly be. I think I'd probably have to be in Newfoundland, uh, before we were really as far away as we can be, but I'm in Maine and you're in Australia and yeah. that's fun to be communicating. Yeah, it's it's amazing what technology can do and, you know, 12 hour time difference. So I just woke up. That's why I sound like this. And Pam is probably going to be headed to bed soon. <laughs> Pam, could you tell us how you got started on this wonderful journey to ocean conservation and um, really kind of highlighting women in um, the work they do for our planet and especially our oceans water well it's a long it's a long zigzagging journey um, I think it probably all took root when I was a little girl and we lived near the beach and my mom would take me to the beach I don't remember any of that the first thing that sticks in my mind is when I was a student in college I moved to uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, and um, I was out walking around um, near the coast, and I saw a harbor seal. It's the very first time that I remember seeing a harbor seal, and of course, 
anybody who's ever seen a harbor seal in the water knows it looks like a balloon or a bowling mm -hmm. ball. And all you see is this round head. And I was so fascinated that I forgot that I had to go to the bathroom and I just <laughs> watched and watched and watched until I couldn't stand it any longer. Um, but then living in San Francisco Bay area for 10 years, um, I had many wonderful experiences. The coast has sea otters, which um, I oh, did wow. my master's thesis on them. Um, I had an opportunity to go up to um, the Seattle area and see killer whales. And people almost literally had to hold on to me by the legs to keep me from jumping overboard and swimming with them. <laughs> um, so because I was in on the Pacific Ocean, I developed a passion for marine mammals and the coast is beautiful, uh, very rugged and rocky. And um, so that's where I developed an interest in this, this real interest in the sea and the sea creatures. And um, as I said, I did my master's thesis on uh, the sea otter, the southern sea otter, there's a difference between those that live in California mm -hmm. and those that live in Alaska. And um, I ended up also helping to do some advocacy work and then eventually on the board of Friends of the Sea Otter. So I guess that was my first um, step into conservation work. And life took me um, away from California, and I like to call myself Quad Coastal because I grew <laughs> up on the Atlantic yeah. Ocean in New York. Um, I spent my college years on the Pacific Ocean in California. Um, I then moved to the New Orleans area, so that's on the Gulf of mm -hmm. Mexico. And then I lived for a number of years in Ohio, which um, is on or near the Great Lake of Erie. Um, and in the United States, um, the Great Lakes are considered part of um, the National Oceanic and Atmosphere Administration's purview. Mm -hmm. So um, it's fresh water, but it's still considered um, a, a major, it's a major body of water. So when it was finally my time to um, decide where to end up, um, I wanted to move back. To the East Coast, and I decided I wanted to work once again where I started with um, seals, harbor seals, and I thought I'd like to work on rescuing them. Oh, well, like so much in life, that didn't work out. But I had such a passion I had for getting back to the ocean and wanting to do something with marine mammals, um, I pulled out my toolbox. And I looked at all the things that I had learned over the years. So I had a scientific background uh, with marine mammals. Um, I spent many years as a journalist and author and photographer. And my terminal degree, I have a PhD in leadership and change with a focus on intergenerational communication between women. And I said, okay. What this tells me is, is that I am a storyteller and that I want to find a way where I can use stories which operate on an emotional level with people and resonate deeply to try and use those stories to 
um, get other people interested in the ocean and in ocean conservation because so many uh, groups, scientists and um, those interested in conservation um, have very well-meaning and valuable missions that they're on, but the regular citizen is often suffering from burnout when yeah. they hear, you know, plastic pollution, uh, noise pollution, um, animals dying, what can they do? So people turn away from it. And I thought, well, if I can come up with a way for people to tell stories about experiences that they have with water, that maybe those will resonate enough deeply that people will begin to take an interest um, again. So I founded Women Mind the Water, and the first project I did was a digital stories project because I figure everybody's taking selfies. So yeah. what yeah, what difficulty will it be for people to whip out their phone and tell a story? Just under three minutes, because most people don't spend more than 30 seconds on, yeah. on a video. Um, and they can tell me a story, funny story, sad story, um, any kind of story that they wanted. The truth is, Kat, that most people may want to take out their phone and take a, a selfie, but they don't want to tell a story and this is hard to believe. They don't want to post it online. So I actually had to go out and collect the stories from people. Okay. Um, but there was reception. Um, I got invited to a kelp festival, uh, which was fun. And I was invited to two universities in Boston uh, to collect stories. And I have about 70 stories um, up on um Vimeo um yeah. and then the Smithsonian Institution that has um an association with uh something called Museum on Main Street uh put it up on their site uh so that gave it real cred and I did that and and then I decided okay it's sort of it's run its course now what do I do Mm -hmm. And that's when um, I decided it was time to do a website and to begin collaborating with other women. And I had two women help me put my site together, my womenmindthewater.com site. And we tried to find a niche for the site because there are a lot of people such as yourself who are... Um, a communicative um, initiative for science. Yeah. But um, there are a lot of people doing that and, you know, it's wonderful, but I was trying to speak to a different audience and pull them mm -hmm. in and educate them. Um, so uh, we found that nobody was doing art related to um, the issues related to the ocean. Now, you had on uh, Janina Rossiter the other day, and you referred yeah. to her as an artivist. Yeah. And an artivist is a fairly new word. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is a combination of activist and artist. And uh, the two women I was working with who were uh, website builders, 
said, what do you think about trying to do that? All right, so I was saying that an artivist is a combination of the word artist mm -hmm. and activist. Yeah. Um, and um, I thought about it and I decided I have skills in, um, I used to use, uh, do um, public access television mm -hmm. um, and I figured I could probably teach myself the skills and um, I don't have as many yet as you. I think I'm uh, my next podcast will be the 20th one. And I have been really excited by the people that I've been able to bring uh, to the computer, as it were. So, for example, um, I had on Eustina uh, Salnikova. Mm -hmm. She's a recycled waste sculptor. Yeah. Um, she, you, do you know her? Or no, no, her? no, I haven't, but I'm excited to check out her work for sure. I'm just looking okay. at your website so she, now. She's in San Francisco, and mm -hmm. she and her artistic partner built Ethel, who was an 82-foot-long blue whale that made the Guinness record, is the Guinness record holder for uh, the world's largest plastic, re recycled plastic sculpture. Mm -hmm. um, I just had on Asher J. Asher is a well-known um, artist who started in fashion design. Yeah. She is a United Nations women design star and emerging explorer by National Geographic. And um, besides her talking about her philosophy about ocean co or conservation in general and wildlife, she talked about her uh, whale shark that she created out of ocean debris. Mm -hmm. And I had on Rose McAdoo. Um, she ha uh, does Whisk Me Away Cake. Um, she is a visual artist who has been to Antarctica three times, once during oh. the winter. And she made a series of seven cakes because that was her medium cake. And her cakes tell the story of global warming and effect on Antarctica. So when I say uh, I have a podcast that is art that's supposed to uh, raise people's awareness about the ocean and the um, sustainability issues, I'm sincere that there is a cadre of women out there who are artists who are making a big splash in their mediums. So I've had um, a dancer um, wow. who founded National Water Dance, and this is in the U.S. There's a global one, too. And on one day, every two years, uh, at the same time, women from all over the country get together and they do their own expression uh, about what they feel is going on in their water. And I could go on and on. Uh, check out my website and my podcast. It's not only I do a video as mm. well as an audio. Um, so I, I highly recommend if you have a chance to watch some of the videos. Yeah. I'm, I'm just looking at this. It's amazing. You have, you know, fellow podcasters, artists, violinists, um, photography, fashion, glass art, plaster casting, videography, like the, 
these women are absolutely incredible. I'm so excited to check out some more of these um, inspirational people because uh, that's... Well, I'm grateful to you for having Janina Rossiter because I reached out to her to see maybe she'd be interested. I haven't done um, a children's book yet. Um, I have a woman lined up whose name is Allie Farrell, mm -hmm. who lives in Maine, and she's written two books now about women who fish for lobster as uh, a livelihood. And being a lobster fisherman is extremely rigorous work. Mm -hmm. And for a woman who, as uh, women know, balance both their working lives and then most responsibility for the household. Um, it, it, it's exhausting just thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. I just have dogs and that's difficult enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, this is a fantastic initiative that you've done. And as, as you mentioned, you know, I do focus mostly on um, science and science communication as that is my background and my kind of comfort area and art is something I've loved looking at but um have always felt a bit short in uh, so it's it's very cool to have one space where all these women are represented and um in in, so in the work they do so let me tell you that several of the artists that I interviewed mm -hmm. are science communicators so yes. Jill Pelto I don't know if you know Jill. Uh, she calls herself a climate changed artist. She does watercolor. She was on the cover of, or her art was on the cover of Time Magazine back in July of last year. Uh, she uh, is mostly interested in um, glaciers. Um, she actually has a um, contract with a group of scientists in Sweden talking about changes that are going on in trees. But mm -hmm. the point that I'm making there is, is that a lot of scientists are reaching across and saying, we can't just do it in text and with our graphs, we need to use art. So they're hiring more artists to communicate. And I think part of that reason is, is that the funding um, and the justification and getting the word out has to come through the general public and yeah. art and storytelling resonate deeply with people. In fact, I just listened to a podcast the other day uh, that was interviewing Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, it's stories that organize people, the stories we tell about what is important the stories we tell about who we are, where we're from, the stories we tell about what's right and what's wrong, that has enormous power. So scientists gain power by having artists and, and those who are more fluent in storytelling to help get their message out. And Women Mind the Water is about storytelling. And I find that the stories are the way for us to connect and provide different lenses with which to view the world, to help us refine or redefine our relationship with each other in the natural world. Yeah. Well, we've, we found this, um, the science has spoken that storytelling is probably the most efficient and effective way of um, communicating what is happening 
because that is, you know, if we look back at history, that is the way we pass down any knowledge through stories and through song um, from generation to generation. And it's, it's the emotion associated with it. And it's, it's the personal aspect of these stories. And I think that's why, like I'm looking right now at Jim Pelto's art, which is so beautiful. Um, and I love that combination of just pure artistry it has. And then the little dots, which kind of symbolize a graph, which just intrigue the scientist in me. Um, so I can see why time put it on the front of um, the magazine. So that's, it's, it's oh, really Kat. stunning. Kat, uh, the reason that I found Jill is if mm -hmm. you go to my art section, yeah, um, I had started to take um, my marine mammals. They're whimsical, but I was, they're a commentary on the status of the oceans. Mm -hmm. And I had put scientific data behind it. And I didn't know that anybody did that. And the women that helped me build this, the, the website and were trying to help me find a niche said, you have to see this woman and what she does. So for example, if you look at, um, you need to look at the um, Northern right whale um, mm -hmm. and the, that um, material behind it that looks kind of like cans in a supermarket. Mm -hmm. That's actually data related to um, the different uh, calamities that fall befall right whales mm -hmm. and with the uh, sea otter um, yeah. color behind it is actually showing the limited range that they have been kept to in California. Oh yeah. So mine is a little more um, abstract than hers, but we, we're both trying to do the same thing with data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, and the, and the killer whale one, the waves are actually um, the relationship between uh, killer whale populations and the salmon. This is Pacific Northwest. Um, yeah. Whales. Yeah. Yeah. Who's the killer? No, that's I, I do have a little um, my my graphic on my T-shirt is uh, plastic is the real killer. And it has the killer whale filled with the trash. Um playing on the word similarly to you with um, killer whales and right. actually taking consideration who the real killer is on this planet, which is mostly, you know, the trash yes. and impacts we have as humans, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's good to see this, this positive spin that you've created bringing together um, these women and your background is really fascinating as well because I'm also a freelance writer um, and I've spent some time kind of in that field and then um, exploring the you know different coasts of the world I, I have gone to different countries but you've had kind of um, an opportunity to see all around the U.S. and I wanted to ask you about that in terms of in your time living on all these coasts what have you found to be the most like palpable or visual um, problems that you've seen in these various areas? Um, well, I have to say um, that I haven't seen a lot. Mm -hmm. um, certainly here in Maine, um, on, a, on a beautiful day in the summertime, you look out and I kind of laugh a bit because there's controversy about putting 
wind farms because people are worried about what they look like. Yeah. But you look out and right now from a small piece of harbor, you can see all these buoys that represent lobster traps. Mm -hmm. And then you can see lots of people now are uh, oyster farming. Yeah. And so there are these uh, various um, plastic containers that they have hooked up and the oysters are in these contraptions that they have. Um, there are a lot of boats that are uh, moored out in the marinas. So it looks like a big parking lot with trash. Yeah. Now, I realize it isn't trash, but each of those operations has a different impact. So mm -hmm. uh, the big uh, to-do be between conservationists who we have one of the most threatened populations of cetacea in the world. We have the northern right whale. Yeah. There are about 350 of them left. Um, and the things that are impacting the whales the most are being entangled and yeah. rope lines. Uh, the lobster fishermen here say it's not from their traps because they just haven't seen it. But just because you don't see it on a, a whale doesn't mean that it isn't, you know, happening. Yeah. And of course, um, being uh, collisions with boats. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've got the pollution from the the ropes, which uh, there's a woman here who I haven't been able to interview yet, who makes, uh, goes along the beaches and collects all the ropes that wash ashore and is making dog leashes and dog collars and mats for the door. So things that people don't realize might be uh, yeah. pollution, whether it's from the ropes and whether it's from the sewage from the boats, they're not supposed to in Casco Bay release sewage, but you know people do it. Yeah, people do it. Um, yeah, and then uh, although we don't have fish farms on the on Casco Bay, uh, there's a lot of controversy about the pollution that comes off of fish farms mm -hmm. by the the fish. Um, you know, their detritus and the food that they're fed, and so. Um, when I say I don't see it, I don't see a lot of plastic on the beach, but I see things out in the bay that suggest that um, there's pollution going on, but it doesn't look immediately. It just looks like um, a nice New England uh, yeah. coastal scene, but it's not. And um, people aren't aware of that. Certainly the other thing about Casco Bay, which is part of uh, the Gulf of Maine, we have one of the fastest heating bodies of water in the world. Mm. Um, so uh, I belong to an organization called Friends of Casco Bay, and they have put out three monitoring stations. They're basically a lobster trap with a couple of different pieces of electronic equipment that measure water temperature and pH uh, a couple other things. And then they have citizen scientists who take pictures from the shore of certain areas. So we can see uh, the uh, sea level rise and we can uh -huh. look for algal growth. And um, 
So, you know, I don't see it per se in that I can't say I see lots of straws uh, washing up on the beach, but I see it in other ways. So it's happening everywhere. I mean, you know, from the the trenches uh, under the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean um, to um, the top of the Himalayas or the Himalayas, however you pronounce it. Um, there's plastic and uh, other pollution wherever you go. Definitely. And I, you know, I wasn't necessarily talking about the plastic straws because I think the more we dive into ocean conservation, the more we realize that is very much a surface um, problem. And it's kind of, I don't know, it's the face, it's the face of a much, much larger issue. As you were saying, it's the things people don't necessarily realize, which is the 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 fishing nets or like the waste left behind from various fishing endeavors um but i think you you phrased it very well in in terms of your local area and um i'd love to learn more about the monitoring equipment they use there and um how the data is stacked up is it the fastest heating basin just because it's so shallow or do you do you know why um i I think it's probably because it's so shallow mm-hmm. um, and probably because of the currents. Yeah. Um, so we are one of the, I think there are only five of them. Um, the Gulf of Maine runs into the Bay of Fundy, which mm-hmm. is one of the places on earth where they have the biggest swings in tide. So yeah. um, I I can't tell you specifically, but I know that the research is there. Um, that it is, I think it, we're 99%, uh, greater changes in heat than other bodies of water. Yeah. Which can be quite detrimental to the local. Right. So for, uh, a a local example that I know of, so Maine has the largest by, um, economics seafood industry in the country and that comes from lobster yeah and the lobster have been moving so that lobster industry was big in massachusetts for i don't know how long and because of the warming the lobsters have been moving north Mm -hmm. and as a result over the last i don't know decade or two maine has been the hub of lobster fishing But the lobsters seem to be moving northward towards Canada. And instead, we're getting something called uh, black sea bass that are coming up from the south. Um, And so there's uh, just like in so many other parts of the world where they're seeing changes in the wildlife. uh, It's going on underneath the water. And the reason that people are aware of it is because it's this iconic species of lobster. Yeah. Um, and if you were in Maine, uh, people come all from all over the world to have a lobster roll. Uh, I've heard that. You know, we're the, the heart of lobster. Mm-hmm. And uh, before you know it, they'll have to be going to Nova Scotia for their lobster. Yeah. Well, even um, I found it funny because I grew up in, I grew up in Switzerland 
um, next to Lac Clément, which is one of the biggest, deepest lakes in, in Europe, um, Lake Geneva for um, some people. And we the, the typical, most traditional dish is filet de perche, which is these tiny little perch fillets. And you have, you know, maybe 20 of them on your plate with some French fries. And that's the kind of classic lake dish that you go on a weekend and sit by the lake and eat. And only quite recently, um, after I moved away, I found out none of these fish are actually from the lake. So it's all imported. And it's been that way for, you know, as long as I've lived there and probably well before. Uh, It's just this, it's still this association that that's the, that's the traditional food in the area when in reality, you know, who knows? I, I don't know where this perch is coming from. I don't even know if it's freshwater fish. You know what I mean? Like, it's just. Um, right. So those of us who eat seafood mm-hmm. really don't have any idea what we're eating. Yeah. And uh, you just because... assume, you assume, oh, it's from just, just here. I'm sitting on a beach. So I'd assume the fish I'm eating is from the water right in front of me. But um, so often it's not the case. And that's quite scary how little um, connection we have, I guess, between knowing where the fish is coming from right but it's also how scary how many fish populations are overfished yeah and people don't understand that and that they think oh uh fish farming is great but fish farming is not the answer or it certainly isn't the answer when certain uh fish farming practices are more harmful than they do good not all of them are but some of them are yeah and finding the difference is really unfortunately difficult and it's something i'm trying to kind of accomplish through through the work i do which is try and help people distinguish between the good and the bad and what to look out for but to be honest with you, I've been researching this for, you know, the last 10 years and I have still no idea. I have I have no idea what is actually a sustainable fish situation and what's not, um, which is why I've abstained from all the commercial side because I, I just, there's too much or too little information, I think. <laughs> well, everybody has a perspective and it, yeah. that's why I think it's good to have communication and I, why I think having stories is great because it does give you new eyes. And sometimes you go, I would never have thought of that. Yeah. Um, and it's also good when you're trying to uh, rash, rationalize or reason with someone uh, to know where, where they stand. Yeah. No, that's, that's very true. Um I I think we covered a lot of the things I wanted to kind of uh, touch upon with you. Um, and I'm very excited to, you know, listen to and watch the podcasts that you, you have done with these amazing women. Is there kind of any other, any other projects or anything that you're working on that you'd like to put a spotlight on? Uh, well, what I'd like to say, because you did ask me, uh, if I had any advice for other people, yeah, um, and and how to make a difference, and mm-hmm. I think the number one thing I want to say is, whatever you do, do it because you have a passion for it. 
because you're going to need to find a way to sustain yourself over the long haul. Um, and that, you know, we have this, um, oh, I'm going to forget the word now, imposter syndrome. We don't think that yeah. um, we can do it or that we have the right to do it or we don't do it well. And so we need to have that passion to sustain ourselves um, and to gain an audience for what we're talking about um, is going to require us to have something that holds us up and keeps us moving forward. Um, patience and persistence are important. Uh, you got to take risks. So I, these uh, artists that I've started with, they don't know who I am. I have no background in this. I don't have a big audience yet, but I'm building it. Yeah. Um, and they were willing to take um, a risk with me because I, you know, reached out and I, I convinced them with my passion. So I think that's important. The other thing is collaboration. Yeah. Um, you need a movement to make a change. You can have an ant move a grain of sand, mm -hmm. but you're not going to build a beach unless you have a whole army of ants. Very true. So um, I've chosen to uh, reach out to women uh, because we tend to do the work, uh, uh, you know, lift up the world and educate. Um, but many times we're not given a voice mm -hmm. or we're not given the uh, descriptions that empower because we, you know, we're catty. Uh, we don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, it's not always true, but generally in a male-dominated field. And uh, when I was working in natural resources, uh, it's it's still predominantly uh, in terms of the people in the higher echelons. Yeah. So collaboration is important. And, you know, having some kind of role model uh to help or to lean on or to have two people leading each other who don't know what they're doing but support through their their passion and their willingness to uh listen and help i think is the key no matter what aspect of ocean yeah. conservation um is important and please anyone that has an interest in collaboration and uh, storytelling, or as I reach out to you and say, if you have artists that you think uh, need to be empowered, uh, mm -hmm. please send them my way. I'm still taking um, digital stories and I'm happy to put up and the Smithsonian Institution is still happy to put them on their site. And I will let you know if I run into anybody else that you might want to talk to. That's, that's, that's all I could ask for. Thank you so much for taking the time um, to chat. Well, to thank me you for evening. inviting me. Yeah, well, it's been, it's been a pleasure. And it's always good to communicate with, uh, you know, fellow ocean lovers and kind of reignite that inspiration and that um, drive. Because I think you're right with the imposter syndrome. We just got to keep, keep moving forward. <laughs> right. So yeah, that's it. That's our episode with Pam Ferris. Also, make sure to check out the Ocean Pancake website. We have it new and approved. There you will be able to find all the information and all the amazing women we talked about in this episode. And yeah, if you are an artist and would like to showcase your work, get in touch with Pam. 
or if you know anyone who you would like to be on this podcast, I'd love to interview. I love interviewing scientists or activists or anyone kind of helping our oceans in any way because we need uh, this community to work together. As always, thank you so much to Grand Moe's for allowing me to use his funky tunes for this podcast. Make sure to check him out. He's based in Brisbane, Australia, or Grand Moe's Music Online. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you in next week's episode.